Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 26th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's only ever opened mythics. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everybody. It's great to be here, especially with some new hardware, hopefully a little crisper for all of you. I apologize if my voice becomes somehow more grating than it was. <laughs> uh, our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, what is on the agenda this week? Well, James, uh, we've got four segments for our listeners this week. Uh, the standard four that everyone should be familiar with by now on our half-year anniversary. So, congratulations! Now, twenty-six weeks. Wow that that went that went fast. Yeah, that went fast. Oh yeah, yeah, it really did. I, I can't say I was there for all of them. I missed the last couple, but you've been here for all of them. So, I, I really did not think it was six months. Yeah, it's incredible how quickly twenty-six weeks flies by. Oh God, it's time warp. Um, okay, segment one, top movers. This is where we're going to look at the cards that have seen the largest gains in price over the past week and talk about why they did. Segment two is going to be our cards to watch. These are the cards that James and I have our eyes on as uh, possible money makers for everybody. Segment three is our metagame we can review. We're going to look back at Star City Columbus, the, st- the standard event from last weekend. And segment four, our topic of the week. This week we'll be discussing Eldritch Moon boxes and specifically the fact that they are mappable. Uh, so let's hop in on the top movers. James, do you want to get us started? Sure thing, Travis. So our, our first big mover of the week was Selfless Spirit. Uh, the two one flyer for two out of Eldritch Moon that moved from two and a half dollars or so up to five dollars for pretty much a double up. Um, this is based on its strong initial presence in the standard metagame. The Spirits deck is looking like uh, a real thing, and uh, any rare out of a recent set that is holding, you know, in the five to six dollar range early on is probably something you want to be unloading if you're not playing them when you think. Yeah, I agree. Selfless Spirit to me feels like a maybe $3 card, possibly one to two, depending on how much play it sees. There just has to be so many sweepers in standard for this effect to be really valuable. And I don't think that we're going to have enough play out of those for this to really pull its weight. Agreed. Next on our list is Dakmore Salvage. Uh, we're looking, you know, this is a future site copy, but really, I mean, it's all of them. And this includes both non-foil and foil copies. Uh, Deckmore Salvage, for those that are unfamiliar, is the uh, colorless land. Of course, it's a colorless land. It is a land that produces black and it has Dredge 2 on it. Um, it has gone from the non-foil, so gone from a dollar to two dollars. So they just about doubled up. The foils have done uh, something pretty similar as well. Uh, as best as I can tell, this is in reaction to the printing of Splendid Reclamation, the sorcery from Eldritch Moon that puts all lands from your graveyard onto the battlefield. Uh, what Dakmore Salvage does is it gives you a land that dredges, so you can, you know, return Dakmore Salvage to your hand, whether with um, 
any sort of draw spell or something like that and then put more lands into your graveyard so it kind of helps fuel that engine i also think it's seen some play in the dredge deck that has been doing pretty well recently with uh, blood gas and prized amalgam and those sorts of cards so some small movement on this uncommon but we all have looked at mitra's bauble jumped to close to 20 dollars now so there's definitely a high ceiling on, on uncommons from this era deck more solid is probably not a 20 dollar card but i wouldn't you know if we see a deck using this breakout this could get into the five to ten dollar range yeah well it, interesting to see how that'll play out uh you know the market price hasn't moved a lot yet um so we'll keep an eye on that as things develop that's the type of card that i would really like to see be worth money because it means there's a cool deck yeah true true enough so uh, next on our list, we have the original printing of Desert Twister. This is the black bordered version out of Arabian Nights, uh, moving from about seven or eight dollars up to fifteen or sixteen at the lowest posted price on TCG Player. The market price is still hanging out uh, in and around the the sixteen dollar range. So uh, for it, for now, it looks like the new plateau will hold. Um, you know, this is probably driven by old school Magic demand, and in, in addition to a little bit of speculation play. And, uh, you know, this old school magic stuff is, is not getting any cheaper, folks. So if, there's, if you're planning on playing that format or you just like some of these older cards for collectability, again, the same advice as has been true all year. Um, get in while the getting's good. Have you played old school magic at all, James? Um, no. I, I, I put together a deck, but I haven't actually dragged it out uh, of the deck box to uh, do any damage yet. I'm hoping to get around to that maybe come fall when I start playing a little more. Is there anyone? Is there a, a scene for that at all in your area? Yeah, Toronto's got people playing pretty much every format. Um, more people from you know old school people that have the money to play those kind of formats are interested mostly in legacy around here. Um, but there's definitely people whipping out dark rituals into hypnotic specter into Jism Jin here and there. That's pretty cool. I you know I'm only barely an hour and a half from you here in Buffalo, and I, I have not heard or seen of anyone play it. I tried to get. My buddy, uh, Bill Bolden, Spruik, the guy that did the Magic album, he lives over here. I tried to get him to play, and uh, he used some unflattering language to, to describe to me what he thought of the format being as, uh, I'm going to use this word in quotes here, elite as it is. He's not a fan of of that, so I mostly just watch these cards from the sidelines, although it does look fun. Uh, yeah. I mean, if we're going to pick formats for the future, um, ones that run into the same problems as, uh, you know, the same style of issue as reserve lifts formats like Legacy and Vintage is probably not where I'm going to push my money. Um, no. If you're looking for a format that can grow up big, you need to look at patterns like Commander, um, you know, a format that's widely accessible and, 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 reward, and rewards uh, deep brewing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I wanted to play Tiny Leaders, but I uh, that died before it got off the ground, which was a shame. Yeah, that that I did play a little bit, and format was fun. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of fast and furious. A lot of games were, you know, early blowouts, but um, yeah, that it, it's it was kind of an odd format for people to wrap their heads around. I think um, doesn't didn't have the same you know cachet as something like Commander, where the you know the primary benefits are social and and group oriented. Um, so uh, I'm not surprised to have seen that kind of go the way of the dinosaur, but uh, who knows what will be next down the road. 
That was uh, such an odd format here in our Warped Little Local metagame. I think I knew of maybe, maybe 10 people that had Tiny Leaders decks, and five of them had Tabernacle of the Pendrel Veil in them. Like, there just happened to be that many copies floating around here, and everyone who wanted, who owned the card was like, yeah, I want a chance to play this. I'm going to play Tiny Leaders. So half the format was that. It was very odd, <laughs> very odd, uh, odd local metagame here. <laughs> so tell, tell me what's next on the list. Sure. Uh, next up, we have Fortune Thief, uh, the Time Spiral copy specifically. Although, I, uh, no, there isn't another copy, right? I don't think it was reprinted in any supplementary products. Started the week at a dollar. Uh, you know, the markets are saying two twenty-five. It looks like the market price on TG, TCG Player is still only one and a quarter, though. Um, so, you know, we've got a bit of an inflated gain here, but the market price has started to tick up a little bit. This is a funky card that when you unmorph it, you can't lose that turn. Uh, it's a morph twist on a spell that was back in like Mirage or Tempest. Uh, I, I can't begin to understand what might have pushed this. Uh, I haven't seen any modern decks pop up using it. So, uh, you know, do you have you got any ideas here? It, it just looks like somebody made a play on low inventory. I mean, there's very few copies left in near mint, um, which leads me to believe that there might have been, you know, 30 or 40 and somebody got it into their head that this would be a good thing to try to corner. Um you know, based on my review of like usage and EDH decks, etc., I don't see there being strong demand. It's not the kind of card that's played as a four of anywhere in a in a deck, any deck of note. So, um, probably a good card to just stay away from if if there's an opportunity to out them on Puka Trade or something in the three or four dollar range down the road. By all means, take it. Yep, I agree. Uh, why don't you give us our next one? Uh, next up is Statecraft, the blue enchantment from Mercadian Masks that basically gives gaseous form to all of your creatures, uh, meaning that they neither deal nor receive damage. Um, started the weekend in around a dollar. In theory, went up to four dollars. Market price is still sitting at two. Um, in my mind, that's a, a nothing to see here kind of uh, situation. Uh, worth noting that it does show up in like eighty-nine percent of the Zedru, the Great-Hearted decks in and Commander. Uh, that's the one Jeskai 2-4 uh, legendary Minotaur Monk uh, that at the beginning of your upkeep you gain X life and draw X cards where X is the number of permanents you own that your opponents control and you can uh, pay Jeskai to have target opponent gain control of target permanent you control. Um, so I, I guess you donate the, st the, the statecraft to somebody so that their creatures can't deal damage anymore. Uh, would would be my expectation, not having played Zedru. Yeah, so I mean, that seems like a fairly limited uh, opportunity, but there aren't a ton of copies left uh, for that card, so uh, definitely worth keeping an eye on to see where it lands uh, moving forward. Whoever cornered it pretty much cleaned it out. There's eight copies lifted, listed at $3 and another six at five fifty. As you said, market prices uh, you know, on this one as well is only at still at around two dollars so has yet to bear out uh as a successful spec for whoever picked up a bunch all right so tell me about soul devi excavations yeah next on our list is soul devi excavations uh this is from alliances it's a reserve list card started the week at a dollar it says it's at six for about 500 percent gain although the tcg market price is still only a little over a dollar fifty so it hasn't actually picked up that much yet looks like somebody just probably scooped up a bunch of the one to two dollar copies in the hopes of making some money on a reserve list card it's not the greatest card i've ever read um, it's essentially kind of like a crew land except 
you have to sacrifice the land, um, but it does generate two mana and it does give you the ability to scry. Um, so not the strongest card out there, but certainly some use for it, especially any deck that wants to play lands that generate more than one mana. So and anything playing Palancron, for instance. So it definitely has some uh, fringe use in Commander and a few other places. I'm okay taking several dollars for this card unless you're fine sitting on it for years and years and hoping it's worth more than that. I don't see a really bright future for this card, but it is somewhat playable. I have a whole bunch of these I pulled out of the uh, Alliance's bulk from the Super Collection, and I would love to ship them out on Puka Trade. Um, so <laughs> um, I, don't yeah. think that, I don't think this is going to be able to hold the new plateau. Um, I suspect it's going to fall back down to 3 or $4. Um, and and that and even at that level, demand is likely to be very low. Um, so I, I think again, this is something that can be easily ignored. We really are getting to the bottom of the barrel of the reserve list stuff at this at this point. Um, although it's interesting to point out that the really expensive stuff, like dual lands, hasn't really moved a muscle because people can't afford to buy, try to buy it out. Um, so I mean, it's really just the stuff. You know, most of the the focus on reserve list this year has mostly been on things under fifty dollars, with a few very notable exceptions. Yeah, which to me just screams market manipulation because that means you have people who are unwilling to really commit to really put the money in to move something like a tropical island and instead are focusing on the cheap cards that they're not going to feel too bad about if they get burned, uh, but that still give them the opportunity to make a huge profit on because they're reserve lists. Uh, so uh, it, a lot of this feels very inauthentic. Does that mean it won't stick? Nope, not at all. It just means that there's clearly... Uh, people trying to catalyze the market. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all of that, except for the term market manipulation being thrown around as pertains to buyouts. Um, we, I've had that discussion many times this summer already. Um, I mean, I certainly agree that people are attempting to move the market, um, but the market always decides. I mean, one of the things we're seeing in, in a lot of the cards in our list this week is that the, you know, the market price very rarely matches up with the plateau. Um, out of five or six cards that were attempted to be bought out this week, um, only uh, the, the original printings of Desert Twister sold at anywhere near the price um, that they posted up at the new plateau. So just something for people to keep in mind. Um, yep. Last card on our list this week is Tamarian Fiends out of Homelands. This is yet another example of a reserve list card that's not really going where... Um, the person that bought it out hopes it is started the week at about 50 cents. They're trying to get nine or $10 for it. That would be a, I'm not even going to say it a thousand plus percent gain. Um, but it's not real <laughs> because there's no demand for this card. The market price is still at a dollar 50. Um, you'll be lucky down the road to get two or three bucks for it. Um, moving right along. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Segment two cards to watch. Uh, why don't you, uh, give us your first card. So, uh, I don't have a super high confidence level on this one, but it is a very powerful card that we're all fully aware um, could make a major comeback in, in Modern. Um, the card I'm talking about, of course, is Dark Confidant, specifically the Modern Masters 2015 version. Um, you know, anybody who's been playing for any amount of time is aware that this card is a complete powerhouse in the right metagame. Still a staple in Jund and Modern, but hasn't really showed up in, an, in another deck in Modern, and I think that's what it needs. It needs to make it, you know, be a four of an at least another tier two deck um, other than Jund, or the metagame needs to shift to the point where Jund is the dominant deck again for us to see much motion on this. The other opportunity is that um, because there is a reasonable 
amount of supply in the marketplace since the last printing last year, um, that we don't see it again in Modern Masters 2017, and it gets two or three years to breathe um, and appreciate. In which case, I could easily see uh, the card, which is currently available as low as, say, 30 to $32, getting back up into the 45 or $50 range. Um, to get in on it now is definitely speculative. Um, there's no indicators that it's going to head that way, but I would say that you only need to get about 50 or 100 copies deep in the online inventory before it's back to being a $40 card. And, you know, from there, uh, you know, the limit is somewhere up in the $60, $70, $80 range, depending on how popular it is. Um, not, uh, not a sure thing, um, but it's an interesting card, especially if you're interested in playing it in modern, because if you want to play Jund or assemble Jund, you know, this is a good time to get in on your four copies of Confidant. Um, I think the art from 2015 is vastly superior to the original art, although I know other people feel differently. Um, so I, I'm happy to, you know, pick up three or four copies of this on Puka Trade this month and, and, you know, play with them, uh, until I see where the card's headed. Yeah, you know, I'm reminded of that old Warren Buffett adage, uh, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Uh, Dark Confidant has just been uh, pretty much off the radar for uh, really since almost before Modern Masters was printed, I feel like the first one. And it's just kind of been a slow tumble for him since. Uh, will they finally stop putting him in Modern Masters next year? It's quite possible. And then, you know, he's well positioned for a slow gain. People will always kind of need copies of this. Uh, it's not a terrible card. So even if you're trading for them, picking up out of binders or what have you, if people want lots of high, you know, uh, overpriced standard cards from you, Dark Confidant is fine to pick up. It's probably not a card they're going to be terribly sad to see go, but it will be easy to trade into after that or uh, to trade away after that because people will still want it. And, um, you know, it, it, this is a type of card that even if it only sees a 25 to 50% gain, that's still a lot of real dollars for you. Uh, so, so I don't, I don't dislike this at all. Um, you know, it, it almost feels like this card has been suppressed a little bit just because of the types of cards we've seen printed lately. Um, you know, Delve comes with very high printed mana costs um, that play very much cheaper than they are, which makes a card like Dark Confidant uh, unplayable you know you can't play tassiger with dark confidant or in you can unless if you're uh, a psychopath um, emerge is kind of the same way you know these very high casting costs that play much cheaper than that so cards like that kind of make confidant a little trickier to play but uh, who knows what we could see in the future if wizards takes a set or two where they push towards low co casting cost cards with additional costs uh, that could make dark confidant much more attractive very quickly yeah, I mean, it's funny you mention uh, Tassiker with Dark Confidant because uh, I wonder if anybody has tested that in the Death's Shadow Suicide Zoo deck, or as I guess we're now calling it, uh, Aggressive Zoo or, or Death's Shadow Zoo. Um, that seems pretty funny, right? To to Tassiker off of Dark Confidant and, and make your Death's Shadow bigger. Yeah, that is curious. I wonder. And you know, that deck plays a lot of cards that funnel into your graveyard very quickly, which make Tassiger very playable. And I'm sure it would love to draw more cards as fast as possible. Hmm. Um, there I'm, you go, guys. Yeah, yeah that's, that's <laughs> breaking, breaking modern yeah, tech break, here break, on MTG Fast. Breaking Finance. news. Um, so tell me about your, your first pick of the week. Sure. Uh, my first pick this week is Ulamog, the Ceaseless Hunger out of Battle for Zendikar. Um, uh, there was a long time ago where I wanted to put this on my pick list and I didn't because it was in battle for Zendikar and the expedition scared me and the card hit like 20 or $25 after it had been around 10. 
So now that he's back towards that range again in the like 10 to $12 range, uh, I am on board with him again. He's still got plenty of time to do a lot of work. These emerge cards and extra Eldrazi spells just make him all the much more appealing for people that want to build, build their mana a little bit more. Um, and plus, he's like the de facto ramp target in Modern and Legacy now at this point. You know, you cheat in Emrakul if you're casting maybe through the Breach or Gorio's Vengeance. Uh, but if you're planning on casting anything, Ulamog is probably the first thing you pick. He's essentially just better than the old Ulamog, um, which positions him very well because now you have standard uh, potential where he could go from 11 to $12 to 20 plus very quickly. And at the same time, you have this long-term pressure that you're going to get from, from commander and from modern and from legacy. That's, that's really going to help bolster that bottom line. And if he doesn't hit $20 this year, maybe in a year, a year and a half from now, he's back up into the $25 range because he's been so, um, he was so powerful in all those other formats. Remember, you know, Kozilek and Ulamog, the first copies were under $10 uh, in Zendikar and, or well, not Zendikar, in the Zendikar era. And they hit like 40, 50, I think $60 for Kozilek at one point before they were reprinted. Um, so there's a, a strong demand for these types of cards uh, over the years. And even if Ulamog doesn't manage to get that much uh, demand or that, that high of a price tag, you know, maybe the expeditions do a little more work on these guys long-term, you know, you're still looking at possibly 30 to $40 in two years, three years. Yeah. I picked up 10 of these at $10 Canadian at GP Toronto on the assumption that wow. they, they were ne- going to need to be stuffed away for a couple of 10 years. Canadian is so good. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, we had, you know, us vendors that came up with us pricing and then price realized they had to charge in Canadian or nobody would know what things cost. Um, so it was, it was a good morning. Uh, I, I also picked up a bunch of the other kind of Oath Eldrazi of note, uh, Thought Nut Seers and Reality Smashers and Eldrazi Displacers in Japanese and Russian. Um, similarly, just to stash them away for potential mid to long term modern appeal. Um, I agree that he can do something in standard. He's still got some time. Um, we've already seen him spike once. His supply doesn't get bigger from here on out. Everybody's b- busy opening, uh, you know, product from the busiest product release schedule of any summer we've seen. Um, So I think that that means that the small winter set, especially given what I keep saying about Oath, which is that um, I suspect that it was under-opened versus Wizards' expectations based on people's negative feedback on Eldrazi Winter. Um, You know, there was a point three or four weeks after the release of the set where people didn't want to open any more of that um, because they expected those cards to be banned or useless. and as a result, I think some of these mythics um, from Battle for Zendikar and into Oath, um, you know, Eldrazi, uh, you know, BFC. Uh, sorry, I'm going to start that whole thing again. I just realized Ulamog's not from Oath. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I definitely believe in, in Ulamog as a, a, a $10 card that can get back up over 15 or 20 um, it can happen because of standard play. It can happen because, uh, you know, ramp decks in modern uh, take a turn for the better. And it can just happen over time uh, because of, uh, you know, general casual demand. I mean, this is one of the better Eldrazi probably in the top four ever printed. Um, and there are going to be people that want to be swinging this on kitchen tables for years to come. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, looks like I am not the only one that has my eye on an Eldrazi this week, though. Yeah, I think my, my Eldrazi pick uh, in Kozilek the Great Distortion from Oath of the Gatewatch is more of an outsider pick than yours. I mean, your card is much more proven. 
Um, Kozilek's still a very powerful Eldrazi. He hasn't really found his rhythm yet, and he doesn't have a deck that is an auto-include. And that has, you know, dramatically impacted his price. But for the power level of the card, the, the ability to kind of counter all your opponent's spells from here on out in your Magical Christmas Land scenario, um, for that card to only be $4 right now, more than happy to go in on 10 or 20 copies, stash those away, and, you know, wait two, three, four years and see what happens. Um, it has an outsider's chance of doing something in standard. Um, it might not. If it doesn't, casual demand will eventually pull this up, I think, uh, in the same way that happened, for, you know, after Rise of the Eldrazi. There was plenty of Eldrazi that weren't very playable in standard or, um, you know, older formats at the time that they were printed. But as casual started to dig them out of binders um, at local game stores, given enough time, um, I think they can they can show reasonable gains given that it's a mythic. Um, so... I think this is the kind of card that there's probably going to be a sale at some point this summer um, where you're going to be able to get them for, say, $3 or $3.50. You might even just hit somebody, you know, one of the known vendors up on Twitter or Facebook and, you know, make an offer. Uh, I see hundreds of copies available on TCG, so there's no rush. Um, but um, I also think there's very limited downside. I mean, I think the card can get as low as three, but it's still a, a mythic Eldrazi. It's not going to go much lower than that. I love Kozilek uh, as the stack of roughly 50 copies over my right shoulder will attest to. Uh, I bought in a little higher than $4. Uh, a group of us had chatted, been chatting about the card for over a month, decided that $6 was probably close to the floor. And I know I'm not the only one who bought any who bought copies, although I think I bought the most. Um, so I've, I've lost a little bit on this guy so far, but I'm still extremely bullish on this card, especially long term. Uh, you know, I'm looking at TCG player and seeing, you know, one guy's got like 40 some odd copies at four bucks. And I'm like, I kind of want to just buy those all because I, I, it's going to be tough for this card to get there in standard at this point. Um, might be my, I shouldn't say that it's not, it's not guaranteed this card will get there in standard at this point, but the card is so powerful and it's still a huge, awesome Eldrazi that fits in so many places outside of standard. I mean, every commander deck should be interested in playing a copy that it just seems impossible that this won't make it to $10 and easily could be double or triple that. So I am, I'm right behind you on this one. One of the interesting clues is that the foil multiplier is about five times. I mean, the non foils are going for about four bucks. The lowest priced foil I can find is just under 20. Um, that's a really big multiplier and it, it suggests that there is enough casual demand on the foils um, for things like cube and or commander decks and or casual play um, that, you know, that current of demand will eventually catch up on the, the non-foil copies once supply gets low enough. That's a great point. The foil multiplier is really good, uh, very indicative of where non-foil copies will end up eventually. All right, so give me your last pick of the week. Uh, yeah, my last pick this week. Uh, okay, I'm going to put this one at a seven. Uh, Ulamog was an eight. Let me throw those in there. Um, all right, I'm going to call this this one a six to seven, somewhere in there. It is Sigil of the Empty Throne uh, from Magic Origins, although there's a couple various uh, sets floating around with this card. Um, I've got this on a very long timeline. This card used to be like seven to eight bucks with a buy list upwards of four. Today, the card is available for a quarter. Uh, 
after so it was in conflux then it showed up in plain chase 2012 there was a uh that's you know rate it rose over the next three ish four years and then uh i think it was late last year yeah late middle of last year it was printed in oath of the gate watch and it also showed up in the reprinting of the um plain chase anthologies i think because I believe the Plain Chase anthologies had the 2012 decks in them, not the original decks, and this was in the 2012 version. Although I could be wrong on no, this. No, 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 you're correct. Am I right? Okay. So there is a lot of extra copies out there that weren't there before. Um, but Sigil of the Empty Throne again is a quarter today. It used to be seven, eight dollars. This is a great card to just shove in a shoebox and wait several years, and suddenly you've made a ton of money on every copy. So uh, not exciting, uh, not thrilling. Going to take a while to get there, but I would be surprised. I mean, even if this only gets to three bucks, two to three dollars, uh, if you're paying a quarter piece, that's a pretty large percentage gain. Yeah, I mean, as as new players kind of make their way through the process of brainstorming and building all the rando casual decks, they eventually hit the enchantments deck. And this is almost always an auto include there. Um, it shows up occasionally in Commander. Um, it's interesting to me that the original foils are about four to five, but you can get the origins foils for like a buck fifty. I mean, a, a buck fifty for a foil rare that can be played in Commander, um, and there aren't that many copies of the foil, uh, even out of Origins, sitting around. It it leads me to believe that the foils will eventually get to five or six at minimum, um, and you know that quarter even turning into a dollar would be you know solid if you could buy list them at fifty cents or something down the road. Um, and maybe you can puka them at, you know, $1.50. Who knows? Yeah, uh, I hadn't looked at the foils, but that's that's a great idea. I like that as well. And I, all of these cards, any version of this card, I think, is setting you up for success. All right. So I have, uh, for, for once, I have a Cell Watch card. Um, keeping my eye on Mythics that I think are probably overvalued. Um, Liliana the Last Hope had a very good opening weekend um, at the Star City Games uh, Open, uh, which we're going to cover in the metagame we can review, showed up as like a four of in most of the black decks. Um, she probably has a, a, a bright uh, to um, intensely bright future in standard, um, better than people were thinking, um, but it's still to me not uh, a $30 mythic. And, and one of the reasons for that, as we're going to get into in the fourth segment, is that I think there a lot of the uh, uh, Eldritch Moon mythics are going to get opened. Um, and we're still pretty early in the opening process. Uh, I think this card is going to fall like most of the good planeswalkers before her, um, down into the 10 to $15 range, even if she gets down to 20, if you're not playing with this card and you've opened it recently, this is probably the time to get off, uh, that train and trade into cards you need, uh, in modern or something. Yeah, I uh, have been talking about Liliana with some people recently, and I am on the same page that I think I think it was every black deck in the top 64 of the Star City event played at least one copy. Uh, very clearly a useful card in standard right now. My concern is that $30 is very high for a Planeswalker. Uh, even Gideon isn't really at that level. Uh, so I'm happy to sell, sell here at 30 if you picked any up. Um, I would say if you need them to play with, 20 is a fine point to buy back in. And if I ever see them in the 10 to 12 range uh, within the next six-ish months, I think that's a great time to buy in uh, because we could see some Jace Architect of Thought action on this where it you know, drops into that low teens and then jumps back up after another set comes out. So uh, definitely a strong card, definitely a position for it in the metagame, but $30 is just a very hard price to maintain. 
I mean, we're, we're getting new swaths of planeswalkers all the time now. Um, the fact that we don't get a core set anymore means that we're, we're pretty much guaranteed to have standard playable planeswalkers for, in four major sets per year. Um, all the planeswalkers uh, are of you know medium to good power level. Um, but there is a lot of diversity in the formats, you know, despite Band Company being, you know, the, the end all for the last few months, there's still been a lot of other decks in the format and they're, um, they play pretty much all of the colors. So the, you know, there were some black decks running one copy of her, two copies, some were running four, um, but it's not a guaranteed thing. And $30 is a lot for a mythic that just came out. Um, so I don't think there's, there's any fear. Um, even if we end up wrong, I think the, the call was still correct that you should get out of this card while you can. You know, and we forget that those Planeswalker decks are on the horizon as well. The announcement for those came quite some time ago, but we are just about at the point where those are going to start hitting the shelves, which is going to be even more Planeswalkers out there. They're not supposed to be standard playable, but you know they're going to mess up and make at least one (laughs) of them standard playable. Yeah, somebody will break one of them or one of the associated cards. Uh, It's going to be interesting. Um, But, you know... Whether or not that happens, the fact remains. Liliana has to do extremely well to hold that price. There have been plenty of other mythics this season that have spiked over 30 or over 40 for brief periods of time and then fallen back to earth, and I suspect that she will as well. Yeah, okay. Uh, let's switch over to segment three, our metagame week in review. This is where we are looking at Star City Columbus, the standard event from this past weekend. If you're listening to us now, it's probably the following Star City event. Uh, I don't need, I didn't bother to look up what city it's in this week. But this past weekend gives us some pretty good information about where we can expect to go. Uh, Bant was absolutely everywhere. Uh, it was something like Bant Collected Company was something like 35% of the day two metagame. Um, so clearly a dominating pres- presence, at least this initial week. Uh, I think every time I visited Star City this week, I saw multiple articles talking about how to beat Bant Company. So a lot of players are coming prepared this week. What uh, What do you think of all this, James? What are you taken away from this um, it still seems like a relatively diverse format despite the the fact that collective company is just an utterly busted card and gets backed up by another four copies of dromoka's command which is also a busted card at least in this format um and it's interesting to me that the first place bant company deck t- took a little bit of a, a a spin on the original concept um integrating the new hot spirit cards it's got running four spell queller and four selfless spirit um, just disgusting to see a, de- a deck running four Spell Queller and four Reflector Mage. Like, is there a sure a faster way to be hated in your local LGS than to be running those eight cards side by side? <laughs> That's a lot of power level for a standard format to be playing with those cards. Well, it's just like it's just so much you can't play Magic. Like, it's just. <laughs> But both of those cards, their text basically translates to you don't get to do whatever you were trying to do. Um, yeah. you, you, were, you were trying to ca- cast a Gideon. No, that just that just gets exiled. Um, now you got to kill my flyer to get him back. Uh, oh, you wanted to play a big creature. No, I'm just bouncing that and coming in for the attack. Um, and in the meantime, they're still running four Sylvan Advocate, Tireless Trackers, Archangel Avacyn. The new Thalia makes an appearance as a three of in the deck. Deskwatch recruiter, recruiter is still in there getting, you know, mass card advantage alongside Collected Company. I mean, this deck has it all. This is a very, very strong standard uh, deck that I would put toe-to-toe with most of the stuff we've seen in the last five years in standard, other than maybe the, you know, the dominance of the Nykthos decks uh, when Mono Blue and Mono Black were so powerful. 
It's funny the way you phrase that, that, you know, these cards don't even let you play magic because land destruction has gone the way of, uh, well, I don't know. Hold on. Land destruction has gone the way of uh, Shroud uh, because Wizards didn't care for the fact that it let, didn't let people play magic. But that is essentially what at least Spell Queller and Reflector Mage do. No, nope, you don't. You don't actually get to, to do whatever spell it is you were trying to do. Um, what is is what we'll be curious here is uh, whether this can maintain through the Pro Tour. I expect to see a lot of Bant Company this weekend. I don't think that will change too much. Uh, but it's a very obvious and easy deck, and the Pro Tour rarely looks like the first week or two in Standard, so I would not be surprised to see quite a sea change. What is that, next weekend now, I think? Yeah, I mean, this weekend we've got uh, SEG Baltimore, and then the week after we have the Pro Tour. I think this weekend's also the GP in Australia, which should give us some insight into what might be happening in the Pro Tour, since some of the pros will probably show up for that event. Okay. Okay, so a little bit longer. But I mean, what's it's not weird to me that we ha- that Spell Queller and Reflector Mage were printed. It's weird to me that they were printed at the same time in the same standard format. Um, you would think that like right, right after Reflector Mage rotated the new, you know, two three uh, uh, white blue creature for three would would have been Spell Queller. To put them both in at the same time at the at, at a point where you have a spell that goes and gets two three casting costs or less creatures like. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's it's crazy. I, they must have seen this coming in their testing that this that the, this that Bant was going to be a dominant color combination. Um, and the problem with most of the control decks is that they just have to hit the right rhythm all the way through. Like the Bant company is so the Bant decks are so relentless at presenting um, offense and presenting threats that sure you kill something and then you kill another thing, but at the point where you stop being able to go one for one. You're having trouble going multi for one, and if you miss a beat and draw a couple lands in a row, they just take over. Maybe they originally had Noble Hierarch in the standard format, and we're like, okay, this is too good. Let's just pull Noble Hierarch, and that will make Bant better or more fair. And they did not realize that they were were not doing enough. I don't know. I, I how? I, yeah, I, I just don't know how you end up with these three cards in standard at the same time. I mean, one of the other interesting things is that Jace Friend's Prodigy has made us something of a quiet comeback. Um, we're seeing him show up as four ofs in decks, whereas like a couple months ago he was basically being you know cast aside. He shows up as a four of in the Sultai Control deck that Ali and Trazi was running. Um, he showed up in numerous other decks uh, that anything that was running blue looked like it at least considered him. He was showed up in some of the Bant Company decks. And, uh, you know, the, the abilities on that card are still messed up. And if he had more time um, before rotation, we might be seeing a price resurgence. Um, instead, we're seeing him, you know, float down into the, the mid-20s where he's starting to get like a, look like a fairly tempting target. And I suspect towards rotation when people really start unloading them that there's going to be a good buy-in point. I actually chucked that card when I was picking my picks for this week to see if it had gotten cheap enough. Right around $25, I think, is the point where you start seriously considering it. So we're, we're getting close. Um, I'm just kind of hoping that nothing happens in Standard that drives him wild again so that I have to wait for him to drop. I think the new pattern in Standard is that within four to five months of rotation, everyone's just scared off. Like the, the prices just start going through the floor and it doesn't matter how, how much demand is in the format for the card because most of the people at that point already have their copies if they're planning on playing them. Even if you like the deck that he appears in late in the game, you don't switch over to it because you've already got a deck and you don't want to spend the extra money knowing that the, the, the floor is so low at rotation. 
Um, it, it, I think we're going to see similar patterns with things like Archangel Avacyn, um, with some of the other Flipwalkers, that you know they, they get their spikes early, and then it's really hard to get a resurgent spike because we're, we've just lost six months off the calendar for some of these cards. Yeah, that's a great point, and one that I feel like we'll we'll need a little bit more time in order to really see how this plays out. Um, you know, we had so long, uh, so many years and years and years of standard environments to really understand how prices reacted to that. And this, we're not going to wrap our heads around this new model in the span of one rotation. Uh, but it, it does bring up an interesting point is is locally we have this very curious phenomenon where there are virtually no standard environments here, uh, at least at like a comp REL level. Uh, between now and October, there is uh, – I was talking to my buddy who is on the circuit, you know, grinding really hard. He's like there are essentially two standard events worth playing within four to five hours of this area between now and October. So standard is is completely irrelevant. Uh, for our entire, essentially our entire city. So if you are in one of these pockets that happens to uh, miss the standard Grand Prix for that season, uh, especially this time of year when the, the pre-TQ season is modern, um, I mean, you might just not play standard whatsoever. You know, all you're doing is watching it on Star City, but you're never playing it because why bother? So it's curious that there are probably pockets of the country that it's just not, they have no reason to play standard at all for like four months, which is going to crush any chance at like Dragons of Tarkir Origins cards uh, maintaining or recovering any value. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I'm not convinced that the benefits to Wizards of rotating faster um, bear out against the reluctance of people to buy cards that are going to rotate. Um, it can swing either way. I'm curious to see where we end up, um, but I'm holding my breath um, trying to look for the, the, the facts to appear. Um, over in Modern at Star City Games last weekend, uh, in their classic tournament, we had a fairly standard top eight, Affinity, Merfolk, Green-White Hate Bears, Mono-White Hate Bears, uh, so a little bit more of that deck than usual, Abzan, Five Color Aggro, Burn, and Jeskai Control. Um, Modern continues to look uh, relatively diverse. Um, uh, the uh, Jeskai Control deck still showing up with their Nahiri combo. Uh, is pretty cool. Um, I'm glad to see that kind of settling in since Jeskai was largely ignored for most of last year. Um, the one that placed top eight this time didn't even run the Nahiri combo. He was just running the kind of classic Restoration Angel, Snapcaster, Geist of Saint Draft, and Vendillion click package. So more like a deck that uh, that Sean McLaren would have run a couple years back. Um, so let's let's dive in on our our, our last segment of the week. Um, we're going to talk about Eldritch Moon boxes. Uh, Travis, you want to break down for everybody what what's been uh, discovered about the most recent set release? Sure. Uh, what we're seeing here with Eldritch Moon boxes is that they are mappable. What that means is that you take your Eldritch Moon box and you uh, unwrap it. And you separate all the packs into the three different wrappers, which I believe are Tamiyo, Liliana, and a Werewolf. And you start opening packs, and as soon as you find your first non-flip mythic, so we're not counting cards like uh, Ulrich um, or the other flip mythics, we're just talking about the ones with the normal magic card back. Uh, as soon as you open your first non-flip mythic, like an Ishkana or uh, Emrakul, the Promised End, um, observe what pack wrapper that came from. So for instance, maybe it was the Liliana art on the pack that you opened. Well, that means that every other mythic in the box, non-flip mythic, will appear in a wrapper with the Liliana art. 
So if you open your box and the first, if you're lucky, the first pack you open will have one of these mythics. Well, now you know to only open that wrapper. So one third of your box, you get th- you know four to five, six mythics out of it. And the other two thirds, you know, have no mythics. So now you just trade them off or sell them or bring them the draft or what have you. Uh, and from what I can understand, this is very reliable at the box level, possibly almost 200%. I'm not I'm not exactly sure. I mean, we're never really going to have great statistics. It's all going to be anecdotal. And even across a case, I believe there is some pretty heavy um, consistency. So, you know, a case might lean heavily towards having all Tamiyo packs uh, across six boxes. Um, I'm sure at this point there might be a little bit more known about it. I, I don't know what has been posted most recently. People who uh, work in a store or know store owners might have a little more insight into this at this point. But clearly there is a, a pretty strong pattern here. Um, which is going to have some some interesting impacts on the market in general, not just immediately, but over the long term. I want to point out real quick that apparently it's only for American English boxes and that any that foreign boxes or even I think English boxes released overseas. It's not happening is, is my understanding. Um, so it's mostly just for our, I'm going to say, local market here. Sure. So worth noting that that may mean that foreign boxes like Japanese, Korean, and Russian are are more uh, interesting than they usually are, um, which is already pretty interesting for me, um, because you know the it will be knowledge, uh, it will be known, um, I should say, down the road that um, the boxes are not sortable, and that's going to help uh, when people are are looking to crack them. The what I think is going to happen here is there's not going to be a big impact. I mean, the reality is that the guys that run out and buy a box every time a set comes out, they're just going to keep doing it. They're going to crack the whole thing. They might take note of where their mythics came from and report it on social media, but by that point, they've already opened everything anyway. Um, the stores are going to be forced um, uh, for reasons of uh, you know, making sure that their integrity appears to be intact to implement policies where they mix up the packs and then flip them upside down or something so that people can't map them in store by picking a certain kind of pack and then targeting the rest of the packs out of the box. Um, this, the news spread fast enough that I think all the stores are on top of that. Um, there's still going to be some people that are going to try to game the system here by um, opening only the packs with the mythics, extracting most of the value from the box and then flipping trying to flip the other packs on eBay but that market's going to get isn't that big to begin with it's going to get saturated pretty quickly and down the road enough people are going to remember that this is a, a problem that I think those packs are going to be pretty toxic um, still what it probably means is that as the news was revealed a lot of people tried this little trick and opened potentially more product than normal thinking that they would get better returns since they knew where the mythics were um, you know maybe a guy who bought a box bought two boxes maybe a guy who thinks he's a minor player um, on his local finance scene you know bought an extra case or something what that should mean is that you know in this this period post release where for a couple of weeks the prices on everything drift down to their natural lows maybe we're going to see more mythics than normal opened which means more mythics in the market which means the mythic prices get a little lower than than they otherwise would have which is a good thing um, if you've held off on buying sealed product on this set uh, maybe you're going to get an opportunity at picking up some mythics a little cheaper than usual yeah, it's it is it's difficult to understand how much of an impact this w- will have. I, you know, I'm guessing that for the players who are picking up singles for their decks, they're not going to see too much of a change. Really, I would guess the largest impact is that it would pre- it would put a ceiling on card prices. 
So you're not going to have a 40 or 50 or $60 mythic because you can go hunt it down much easier than you could otherwise. So it seems like it's mostly just setting a ceiling rather than really affecting average prices too much. That's that's my guess anyways. One of the other interesting things is, as you pointed out, um, the flip mythics are not included in this math, which means that uh, cards with high demand, like Gisela the Broken Blade, um, with, uh, you know, a card that both in foil and non-foil, at whatever its low ends up being, is probably a pickup and will make one of our lists down the road. Um, just based on the uniqueness and the collectability factor on that card. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that she's a, a strong standard player already um, means that a lot of the copies that would normally have been opened might not be because you know they can't be searched. So Gisela might actually have a higher ceiling than normal. So uh, also worth pointing out to everybody that uh, this is not the first time magic boxes have been sortable. Uh, going back a couple years, back maybe two to six years ago, you could easily download a piece of software that would help you map your boxes. That was based on print runs um, or sequencing in the cards. So basically what would happen is you would open a pack and report uh, the rare that you pulled, and the sequencing would, after you opened about a quarter of a box, it was able uh, to successfully identify where the rest of the rares would be um, based on the sequencing of the packs. Supposedly, um, you can no longer do that, but it's not actually clear to me whether the guy that was publishing that software just got scared off the scene and was still doing it privately, um, or whether the, the print runs were, in fact, not predictable over the last couple of years. Um, whatever was going on to fix that issue, in theory, had, now seems to have been thrown, you know, Wizard seems to have thrown caution to the wind. Um, and if you go far enough back, uh, you know, to sets like Fallen Empires, um, you know, some of those older packs, pre-foil packs, uh, could actually be searched just by looking at them, um, at least for, for some of the cards. Um, re- revised packs, you know, you always have to be careful if you're buying old revised packs be- to make sure that people haven't tried to search them because they were uh, composed of a white plastic that could be stretched and, and manipulated in certain kinds of light to see what was inside them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember you used to be able to do that. So that's that's all we've got on that topic, and uh, I guess that is a wrap for the week, folks. Um, where can people find you online, Travis? I am on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Wednesday at MTG Price. Uh, yeah, those are those are the two places I'm available these days. Uh, how about you? You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MTGPrice.com. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Uh, that brings us to another the end of another MTG Fast Finance podcast, our, our half-year anniversary here. Uh been a great half a year looking forward to another half a year after that and then never again (laughs) Uh, i've enjoyed our chat today james uh have a nice night thanks travis and we'll see all of you next week on another episode of mtg fast finance